Hey everyone, it's your favorite cynic and critic, The Gov, here, thanking you for tuning in to this episode of Scarefire, featuring our guest host, Jeremy Bodet, a true gentleman and horse scholar, especially in the subgenre of splatter films. Unfortunately, though, this episode has one of those very inconvenient technical problems. The last 10 minutes of the episode cuts out for some reason due to unforeseen circumstances beyond our control. We don't know what's going on, but don't let that stop you because it didn't stop us. So kick back, relax, and enjoy Scarifier. Oh my. No, no. No one can get themselves in that kind of position. Sure they can. Just keep watching. Oh, Jesus Christ. Wrong porn, guys. Oops. It's torture porn on Scarifier. Oh yes, you psychos. Torture porn this week on Scarifier. I am the Ace. I am the Gov. And I'm Quinn. And you are in the house that Psychos built. We have a fun, fun show for you guys today. We actually are going to have a guest host. And because of social distancing, we did pre-record the show. But I would like to introduce to you a good friend of ours. His name is Jeremy Bodep. He is actually a former host on the YouTube series, Wrestling with the Business. And you can also listen to him right here on Anchor on Just My Opinion with Ken Lambert. It was actually a really good conversation. It was a nice uh, second part of our call-in interview thing that we've been doing lately. But the guy went on and on. It was really insightful. He loved this subgenre. It's okay. I got a nap in. It's fine. Uh, yeah, definitely a great conversation, engaging conversation, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So with that, it's showtime. <laughs> Jeremy, you are in the house that cycles, but how's it going, dude? I am excellent. I am excellent. Enjoying my quarantine. Aren't we all, right? <laughs> So, all right, well, so let's get right into this. Um, we're talking torture porn slash Garno. Um, let's start off with the, where the, the term came from. Now, it's under my understanding that the film critic uh, David Edelson actually used the term first um, in describing Eli Roth's hospital. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, it was... You know, it was <laughs> it was actually used as a little bit of a put down, I think, in the beginning. I think it's, at least in my opinion, it's a bit of an oversimplification of of the genre. I think that I, I think his intention was to, you know, in, in one word or less, to try to find a way to communicate um, all the things that he really didn't appreciate about that particular style of film that had been around for um, probably his entire lifetime, certainly dating back to the early 1960s, um, dating all the way back to the 1930s, even if you consider some of the morality um, movies that were being put out back to the earliest days of Hollywood. So I think that um, initially he used the word as a bit of a, um, in a derogatory way. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that that sort of stuck. And I think the use of that term sort of and the catchiness of it sort of pigeonholed the genre in a way that um, I think created a lot of success initially for the genre. A lot of the you know splatter films from the early 2000s, a lot of names that I'm sure we're going to be using here today um, had extremely low budgets, $5 million or less um, for a major Hollywood film. And they made, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 times um, their initial investments, but then it, it burned out very quickly. Um, and I think a lot of the public became extremely tired 
um, of it. And they sort of looked at a very, looked at it in a very simplistic way. And what they came to find out is, you know, it's just sort of the enthusiasm started to burn out as a result of that. So what would you classify it as? Um, I prefer, I mean, like it's, so if, if I was to try to define it, I would say I prefer using the term splatter film. I think the downfall of using that term is that that is a much, it's a much more general term. It's a much wider term that encompasses way more films. I mean, when we picture, when, when we picture Gorno in your head, I think people picture, uh, uh, tits and intestines. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, like, I, I hate the term like, uh, torture porn and I never use Gorno, but like torture porn, like, I feel like, so was somebody going to pop in like a BDSM movie or you know, <laughs> like a snuff film shades. or something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 50 shades of not great. Like, you know, I, I think that, um, I, yeah, I, I think that that's a serious disservice. You know, I think I, I prefer to think about it like, um, the, a, a really good splatter film uses violence the same way that films often use sexual content, right? It's designed to get the same response from the audience, right? It's a, it's a physical act, right? I mean, if you think about it, it, it uses the extremely graphic portrayals of violence to sort of display this vulnerability that the human body has, right? And there's this closeness and there's this, oftentimes there's this intimacy between victimizer and victim. It's extremely unique. I mean, it's, and, and you can even see in the way that it's shot, a lot of the directors and the filmmakers use a lot of the same techniques during the torture scenes of the films that they use during the sex scenes of love films. I mean, if you're just looking at a shot for shot, a description shot for shot, it's, it's, it's tough to tell, uh, you know, the torture scenes from hostile from dirty dancing. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same techniques in the same order in the same way. Uh, Jeremy buckle up because Quinn has something to say. <laughs> okay. So I'll go ahead and use that analogy that you just gave us between dirty dancing and hostile. The dispute that I have with that is dirty dancing was more suggestive. And yes, it did show more than at that time what normally they were allowed to show. But like Hostel left like nothing to the imagination. Now, Hostel went right in there. It punched you square in the face. Didn't apologize. As opposed to Dirty Dancing where your brain kind of does a wonder what that is type idea. Almost like an allurement as opposed to, like I said, something like Hostel being aggressive and being like, well, this is what we're going to do. And this is what you're going to see. No imagination. We're straight to the point. Yeah, I think that there's definitely some validity to that. Um, my comment was mostly surrounding the techniques of techniques of filmography, right? Drawing a link between the director trying to portray the intimacy between two consenting adults, right, in a in a in a in a sex scene um, versus uh, one consenting adult performing an extremely physically intimate act. It's, it's, it's a pure, it's a pure technique. All I'm saying is that they're using the same tools. Um, I think that keep in mind, dirty dancing did not shy away from controversial, uh, baby, baby's age, right. Baby is not a 30 year old woman, right. Uh, they, they, they address the topic of abortion quite directly in that film, right. There's a reason why baby has to dance. Right. And that's because, the previous dancer is off getting an abortion because she's pregnant and she can't come back and dance. So uh, that's certainly not to say that it's the same thing, but what I'm saying is films in general, try to good films 
always try to address a controversial topic. Dirty Dancing was not meant for a subgenre of horror, of horror. So they didn't, it didn't smack you in the face with it, right? They didn't bash you over the head with it the same way that a film like Hostel does. The message is a little bit different. But if you want to get people's attention, you have to address a controversial topic of the day. And I think in a film like Hostel, the controversial topic that was trying to be addressed was the ignorance of the American tourist post 9-11, right? This is the view that people around the world had of the American male, certainly the young American male, of, you know, these ignorant horn hounds that are just out to get high and bang as many prostitutes as they can. And this is the comeuppance, right? This is the trap that you're going to fall into when you're just chasing pussy and not caring about anything, right? It was, it's, it's almost, it's a critical look at the exploitative culture of America when put on the international stage. And we see that these men that are running around chasing uh, chasing these women, right. And trying to physically, uh, chase these women end up being taken advantage of themselves in an extremely physical way. Right. And so there's this weird juxtaposition that that violence that smacks you over the head with really, it really shines a light on that extra violence. And by the way, one other comment I wanted to make to what you said, Quinn, which I think was good. It smacks you in the face, but they're actually, if you go back and look at it shot for shot, and I did, um, and I'm quite familiar with the film. There actually isn't as much actual violence as you think into, uh, in it. There's a lot of impl implications of violence. There's a lot of snapping of scissors and revving of chainsaws and, and that kind of stuff. But the actual on-screen violence is not nearly as much as you might uh, remember uh, going back afterwards. I mean, it's really, I mean you're really only looking at a few minutes of total violence. The rest is all done through noise and clever camera work and, and implication and inference and all those other kinds of things. Right. But that shock value is what hits you in the face. Yeah. That's kind of what more point I was going after. And I think that that highlights, I, I think that that it raises the stakes Right. And I think in a, in a good splatter film, and this is why I like the Roth films more than I like a lot of the others, because Roth in many ways does the work. I mean, when we watch the green Inferno from 2013, uh, that plane crash happens. They don't crash in the wilderness until what? 40 minutes into the movie for 30, 40 minutes into the movie. Um, yeah, it takes a while to get to it. Yeah. You know, the, the same thing with the hostile films, the first half of the movie is basically a snooze fest. I mean, I remember the first time I watched it in 2005, I was like, I almost fell asleep, you know, before, <laughs> before they finally dragged him into that factory. Um, you know, and I think that you, it, it smacks you in the face when it hits you, but nobody's surprised, right? Nobody's surprised as they're wandering into that factory or as in hostile part two, when all of a sudden all of her friends start disappearing and then these strange men start chasing after her. Um, you know what she's in for, right? You know, what's there. It raises the stakes. If they were to just come out and punch you in the face right out of the gate, then you've already taken it to 10. And how do you spinal tap that up to 11, right? You can't really do it. You've already given away the goods. But a good director like Roth, he leads you into it. He does it in a way that doesn't make you um, sympathetic to the characters, which might be a cost on his part of him trying to make him trying to be actually critical of the characters in the film. He doesn't want you to feel particularly sympathetic um, so that instead of feeling sad for them that they're never going to see your kid again, you're just sad that they're having their arm cut off or their fingers cut off or they're feeling this pain or whatever. Um, but in the end, the stakes are still high. You're still there. You're still grabbing your chair. You're still sweating. And you're still having that same visceral reaction to what's going on on the screen in front of you. I mean, you make a good point. You do. Um, I, I'm thinking of two movies, in my personal opinion, nobody has to like it, that I feel don't drag in the beginning um, mm -hmm. Final Destination is one that gets your attention and it keeps you there. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one that I'm thinking about is Saw. Mm -hmm. Saw makes you go, what the fuck, from the very second. Mm -hmm. 
that Carrie Elwes wakes up and it gets your mind going from the very beginning as opposed to dragging on and on and on and then full throttle right at the end. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll say to a point with those films, at least you, and I don't even know if I would consider them a part of the I, I don't necessarily keep them a part of the splatter films, to, but as far as like pacing but, is concerned. But what I will say is what they do with those characters is you are invested in those characters, you actually get a chance to get to know them and yeah, sort of feel sorry for them where Jeremy just said that Roth doesn't concern himself with that. It's, it is kind of a comeuppance kind of, you know, cautionary tale, which isn't unlike the slasher films of the eighties. Right. You know what I mean? Just, I guess more in a realistic tone. Yeah. You don't, uh, you don't have a guy with a hockey mask anymore. You have a person in a swimmer's cap and an apron. Oh, so kind of like the uh, 2019 Invisible Man type yeah. idea? Let it go. No, <laughs> I will never let it go. That movie made me so angry. I, I, think, there's, I, I think there's an interesting point there in that... Um, you know, even if you look at the Saw films, and and I and I would I would I would say that Saw is more splatter than any other genre. I think it definitely dips its toe in, in multiple genres and subgenres. Um, but it it definitely you know the same thing is like like the film Seven, right? Like okay, you look at a film like Seven, you're like okay, it's a Fincher film. It's extremely dark definitely like and extremely boring it's, it's it's got a lot of it's it's got a heavy violent component to it but you don't actually see a lot of violence in the film there's not a lot of actual violence there so that would be one that i would say kind of skirts the edges but a film like saw one thing that that does that's quite interesting in relation to primarily the work of eli roth is that it presents you with heroes that are extremely uh, extremely faulty, um, just like our quote unquote heroes from Hostel and from the Green Mile. You know, they're heroes that do bad things, that don't have good intentions, that are exploitative. You see, as Jigsaw says, he does not capture church choir boys, right? These aren't women that are out handing dirt, handing out dirty needles to drug dealers and, and clean condoms to to prostitutes. You know, these are people that have their own checkered histories and you find yourself in a position where you're actually cheering for the person that in almost any other film context would be the villain, right? This is the drug dealer. This is the guy that's done bad stuff. This is the whoever taking it back to dirty dancing, right? This would be the guy that you wouldn't be cheering for in the corner. Um, I'm sure that any single one of the the kids inside the Eli Roth films or inside the Saw movies would be members of Cobra Kai. There's no two ways about it. Um, but oh, I love Cobra Kai. <laughs> but I think that um, I think that in that way, um, that genre, because of the the extreme nature, right? Because of the extremity that that visceral violence takes you to, it allows you to provide more nuances. Uh, in different places of the plot line, in different places of the structure, in the characters themselves, you don't have to have black and white, right? Like that Cabin in the Woods film where it very blatantly lays it out, right? She's the virgin, he's the jock, blah, 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 blah. Um, you don't have to stick to that structure because the stakes are so high that everything below it gets completely reorganized. And I think it gives you a lot of freedom to play with the characters. The trouble is that in an American film that's 90 minutes long, you don't have the time that you need to truly explore the intricacies of the character. And so you end up taking, you end up taking uh, away from the violent aspect, which pulls you out of uh, sort of out of the, uh, the splatter film genre, like a film like seven would do where we learn a little bit more, right. About the Kevin Spacey character, the Brad Pitt character, the Morgan Freeman character, and there's a lot more character development or you end up throwing yourself way in the other direction where there's no character development whatsoever. Like, you know, uh, the Serbian film or, you know, some other crazy film like that, that just goes completely in the other direction. And it's more like, okay, can I keep my lunch down? Um, There's just not enough time to do what you need to do. I think. Well, what's the appeal of these type of movies because I from a general audience perspective I mean back in the day when these movies were coming out uh everyone was just drawn in by the allure of the special effects so would this be more of a 
you know, special or practical effects display it as opposed to a movie that has a, a storyline or a narrative to it. Because you you get everybody in the cinema is going like, oh, you got to check out Saw or you got to check out Hostel and how they kill this guy in the most creative, disturbing way possible. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think that, um, you know, I think that the appeal is different for everybody. I think that there's no doubt that there is a particular percentage of the viewership that is just, you know, sadistic. Dennis Rader, Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, type people. I think that there are, you know, there is a, a group of people that are like that. I, I think that there is another group of people that are there just to see if they can keep their lunch down. They're there on a dare. Um, you know, can they get through it? Can they not get through it? I, I think that that really only represents, you know, 10% on the bottom end and let's say 10% on the top end. I think that the middle 80% are people that are dragged there by people on either end of the spectrum because there's a, there's a, and this goes back to the, using the term Gorno, um, you know, people go in there expecting to see one thing. And then when they find that the onion just has a second layer, if there's just a little bit of complexity, a little bit of nuance, a little bit of interest, it's like everybody's expectations were so low because they were just expecting to see somebody chained to a chair and have their head cut off that everybody's just so overly impressed. You know, this is why Saw was such a box office hit because when they realized that not only were there good special effects, but there was actually some, there was actually some drama to it, right? There was actually some suspense. There was actually maybe a little bit of comedy, right? And you got that same, people didn't expect to see that kind of film the way that it was marketed and the way that it was advertised originally. So just by achieving, just by overachieving in that little bit, it created this environment in which, and then of course it becomes this cult, cult hit, right? Now everybody remembers being Saw because everybody was 14 when they got to see it and it was, it just blew them away with a level of complexity. Yeah, to the 14 year old mind, you know, a plot like Saw and the, the moral ambiguity of the characters inside it was extremely interesting. Well, I mean, it, when you talk about, I, I agree with you to a point with Saw. I mean, the complexity and the characters were there with maybe the original trilogy. Yeah, the first two. That, but when you get to the four, first two, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, when you get past into the multiple sequels, it really does just become a look how we kill this guy and look at the twist we cooked up for the ending to keep you coming back. Exactly. Like a cliffhanger, like in the Batman series. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, and, and I think we all should do this. I think that, you know, once, once you get beyond the, the, once you vary from the original director, a lot of the original cast, you're, you're creating an entirely different animal. Um, you really can't judge, you know, I'm not going to judge land before time 10, the same way that I judge land before time. You just can't, you can't treat it the same. And that goes across any genre. And there was, that took a really weird turn. There guys. A, there's a, land before time. That ruined me as a child. Thanks, Jeremy. That's the true horror. Oh my God. So I think. Welcome children. Let's talk about death. Okay. What is mama dies? He's got to overcome something. Jeez. Come on. <laughs> so i think yeah my goal is to pepper as many children's film references in this horror movie conversation as i can so two down two down yeah. um I, I just i think that you i think across all genres you can't judge the third movie the same way you judge the first two there's a, especially in the horror genre it's especially bad in horror and animation and that's because they're cheap to make they're cheap to make. So production companies see it as a cash grab. They know that they could go direct to DVD, that 10 to 20% of the sadistic population is going to invest in it and they're going to buy the DVD and they're going to rent the film because they just are dying to see what happens next. And as long as they only spend $250,000 on the film, then they're going to make their money back. And to them, it's a good investment. It keeps the lights on. That's really the only reason why you saw Saw 6 and Hostel 3 and all those other films. And then they're just running out the clock because in another 10 years, they're going to be like, hey, wouldn't it be great to revisit the Hostel films? Hey, wouldn't it be great if we redid whatever? You know, because they're, they're just running out the clock. They're just trying to keep keep things going. 
So I, I think you're right. I think that it's, there's a half-life, there's a half-life on every story. And I think that because of the intensity of the splatter film genre in general, yeah, that half-life is going to run out correct. It's going to run out really quick. Um, and I think you can't get any more than one or two films. I think Hostel Part Two is really only half as good a film as the first one is. So I'll give them one and a half. Um, but yeah, I think. I mean, essentially the same film, just with female characters. Uh, I think that's a bit of an oversimplification. Uh, I think that Eli Roth did say something unique and interesting, um, not just about the human nature of the victims in Hostel Part Two, but about the human nature of the perpetrators as well, right? These are the people that do this. Um, and there were some interesting, unique twists in there. But um, like I said, you can only get, because it had recycled roughly half the plot from the first movie, you only get half of a good movie. Right. And then Hostile Part Three is a half of that half. And it's the same thing with the Saw films. It's the same thing with all of them. The half life is just too short. So I'm going to backtrack for half a second. In your opinion, do you consider Seven a splatter movie? No. I would say that that one, it definitely skirts the edge, but there is not enough actual violent, because there's really not very much about violent content at all in that film. But I think that it, you know, you add one or two violent scenes in there and I think it would certainly qualify as an exploitation film. Um, but unfortunately, unfortunately there's not enough, there's not enough gore for it to qualify. All right. Well, and then that's actually where I was going to leave the conversation. What qualifies as a splatter torture porn? Yeah. You know, what qualifies a movie for that? And, and and further on that, does it even have to be in the horror genre per se? I mean, you look at some of these uh, war movies with yeah, all the God. gore or any Mel Gibson epic, for that matter, <laughs> you know, you know, what's the qualifications? Um, and that's actually a really good question, because I think that you might see you might find a scene in in a in a suspense film or a thriller film that might. Um, uh, that might be a splatter scene. Um, I'm thinking about um, the torture sequence from Law Abiding Citizen. You know, no one oh, yeah. in their right mind is going to oh, yeah. say that that's a splatter film or that that's even a horror film, but there could be no doubt that that, that is direct out of the... the well, that's definitely a sequence. That's, that's yeah. an exploitative sequence. So I think that even people that, and, and I think that the, the success of a film like that relies on the stakes being that high. If, if you don't, if he doesn't get his revenge like that, and if you don't see it in the beginning, if they just find the body, if you just jump cut and you don't find out that he had all these, you know, he had all these devices set up and he had adrenaline there so that he wouldn't pass out and he had extra blood and he had, if you didn't, then that takes away from the intensity of the sequence. It takes away from the intensity of the film. It, it um, sort of milk toasts the character. Oh, this guy really isn't that committed. He's really not all that into it. And it flattens the character out. So I think that you can use a lot of those same themes to really enhance other films um, across the genre. And you can see the same film type techniques. I mean, let's take a film that's, I think way out of left field compared to this. Let's take 007 Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. Okay. The, the, the torture sequence towards the end of the film, right? There's no blood, right? But it's the same scenario. It's the same. He's naked in a chair. He's tied to it. There's a hole in the bottom of it. They use shadowing in the sequences, the same way that they use it in the hostile films, the same way that they use it in seven, the same way that they use it in the saw films and the idea is to set a mood, right? Every shot has a purpose behind it. And the idea is to set a mood. And that mood drives the intensity up, right? You spend the whole film, you're stressed out because it's action sequences. Then you're stressed out because he's playing cards and it's for a gajillion dollars and a terrorist is going to bomb a whole bunch of people if he wins this money back. So you're stressed out over that. And now you're stressed out over the actual physical, uh, the actual bodily physical and, and frankly, 
kind of graphic in 007. It's not quite as graphic. It's a little bit more <laughs> nuanced, should we say. But, you know, I think that, that it's still there. So the types of films that classify like directly as a splatter film, you have to have direct violence. You have to have direct visceral graphic violence in order for it to truly be considered a splatter film. If you're not looking at internal body parts, if you're not seeing buckets of blood, um, if you're not, you know, if there isn't pain associated with it, then you're definitely not dealing um, with a splatter film. Um, and like I said, there are modern day films that ride the edges. Um, and there are even some films that I think you can argue about. I'm thinking about like, you know, the Hills have eyes, the last house on the left. Um, you know, the, the, some controversy over whether we would consider the devil's rejects and house of a thousand corpses, um, because those are kind of grindhouse style films, which sort of fit into the subgenre. Do, do they count or do they not count? But I think for the most part, I think it's just that one category alone, just having explicit, consistent graphic violence, which is designed to elicit the same response from you as the viewer that you would get from a sex scene, right? That same physical feeling that you get. That is what the director is trying to get out of you. <clears throat> would you consider, uh, for example, like the Nightmare on Elm Street movies? No, no. Um, no. No, 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 no. I mean, they're, they're extremely graphic. I mean, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the marionette scene is probably one of the most gross scenes in the, in the genre. Scream, for God's sake, she's hanging by her intestines. I think, um, um, I, I don't think that there is enough of it. Yeah, like, I think you can make the same argument with, like, Hellraiser, right? But I, I think that mm -hmm. um, yeah. because there's a lot of particular graphic moments, but I don't think that those films rely on the fascination with the vulnerability of the human body. I think that these films, I think that splatter films are exploitatious in nature. They have to have exploitative themes. And I think that um, Nightmare on Elm Street really doesn't carry that same theme, right? Um, from Seven. They talk about the pound of flesh, nothing more, nothing less. And in, uh, uh, in, in Hostel, um, you know, we talk about the exploitation of buying people, right? The same way we talk about human trafficking and human sex trafficking. You know, these guys have essentially been human trafficked across the international border, and now they're being physically taken advantage of the same way that they wanted to physically take advantage of the women that they're after over there. Um, it's the same kind of idea. It's the same kind of structure. And I think that it, if you don't have that same vulnerability of the human form and you don't have to have that same type of theatricality, um, I just don't think that it fits. And I think that most of Nightmare on Elm Street is built around, uh, you know, the slasher. It's built through. Yes, there are extremely because you because in order to get rid of in order to try to lengthen that half-life, a lot of times directors that are doing the third or fourth or fifth movie will use more explicit violence to try to drive that same type of stakes into it. Cause we've already seen Freddie. We already know who Freddie is. What, well, why, why would we go back for, Oh, well, we want to see what he's going to do next. And you see it in every film. I mean, the original poltergeist film had one sequence that was bloody and disgusting. Right. And it was all inside a guy's head where he tears his face apart in the mirror. And then by the third one, you got all this crazy stuff happening because they're just trying to raise the stakes. It comes off as very um, inauthentic. Um, deaths aren't earned. Plot development isn't there. Um, and, and in the end, they're just, again, like I said, they're just trying to run out the clock. They're just trying to get to the next step. So basically, what your point being is it is vulnerability of the human body that is manipulated and mutilated in a way that almost strikes a chord. Yeah, I think it, it has mind, to be. I think correct? the other thing is that it has to be graphic. It has to be graphic. Right. So then that means that you could also lump body horror 
to a degree into that same category? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that they're, um, I'd say that they're close relatives. Um, again, you get down into these subgenres and sub subgenres and, you know, whatever. I think that there's a lot of overlap between the genres. You know, I, I've already mentioned myself, you know, the, the exploitation films from the 1970s, Ride the Edge, um, you know, the cannibal films from the 1980s, they ride the edge. Um, you know, the, the zombie films from the 1970s and 80s. I think once you get down into the subgenre, there's a lot of overlap. Um, but I think that, go ahead. Well, I mean, I mean, definitely, you know, the, this kind of movie has its roots, uh, especially in Italian cinema with the Mario Bava films, you know, but would you consider this a actual subgenre or a subgenre? Uh, <laughs> uh, would I split one hair or two hairs? Um, I'm not sure. I think that it's. I, I would say to keep things simple, I would say it's a it's a subgenre. Um, the same way I would categorize it, the same way that I categorize a slasher film. Right. There are certain canonical works that are associated with that genre that everybody knows. There's a thousand other uh, works of, of minor import that recycle a lot of the same uh, techniques and tools and themes that the canonical works do. And uh, and I think that it's large enough, especially nowadays, I think that it's large enough, especially when you consider the scope of international films, uh, the French, God, they're bloody disgusting, the Koreans, holy crap. Um, the, the Serbians for the love of God. I think that once you encompass the, uh, the international scene, you develop a body of work that is large enough and unique enough to be considered its own, its own subgenre. So where do you think the downfall of it lies? How, like for a, a brief time, especially in the early two thousands, we saw a lot of these movies and a lot of copycats come out and then all of a sudden like turning off a light switch, it was over. I'd you say know, overexposure. Overexposure. That could be a good one, but everybody did it. Or were, you know, was it, we've seen this before, you yeah, know, but, but even like something like the slasher genre didn't last nearly as long. Right. Or have a resurgence where oh let's make you know, these. It yeah. seems to me that uh, you know, and, and I'm using a broad generalization here, but it seems to me like you can't get really any more than like ten good years out of a genre. It seems like there's some canonical film that sort of begins things. And a few years later, it catches fire and a whole bunch of other directors and a whole bunch of other uh, production companies are interested in investing and exploring that genre. You come up with a half dozen or so really cool, really unique pieces of work that become, you know, uh, cult classics in their own right or mainstream successes. And then you come up with two to five dozen other minor pieces that, you know, you're really only interested in if you're a big fan. Um, and then it burns out because the, the, you know, the horror genre in general, like every other genre, is a transforming genre. I mean, every generation has its own tastes. It has its own interests. It has its own, uh, we talk about the Overton window, right? That's the window in which the acceptable forms of communication take place. And that Overton window is, is constantly shifting, right? We're t talking about John Denver and D Snyder going before Congress to defend the right to say fucking shit on a CD. Right. And you know, that was just in the early 1990s. Well, the Overton window shifted 10 years later into the early two thousands. And now we're talking about being able to view the a depiction of somebody having their own head cut off. Um, you know, as that Overton window shifts, the genre shifts with it to try to continue to shock and surprise and entertain people. And what ends up happening is now that, you know, film is more than 100 years old, 120 years old now, um, you start to see the mixing of genres. So I think you touched on this a little bit, uh, Gov, with your comments on like, oh, are we going to remake this or not? Well, yeah, that's why now you see, you know, Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre is getting remade today using a lot of the same themes 
from the splatter films of the early 2000s, that same level of violence, that same level of physicality, that same level of human vulnerability is being taken advantage of there. Well, I, I definitely agree that the stakes have to be raised since these films, because now we've seen how graphic graphic can be. Exactly. So if you want to play the game, you got to, you know, switch up I mean, your strategy. I think there are multiple ways to um, switch up your strategy. I think that, um, you know, there is something about the old gothic horror film. I mean, I just went back and, and rewatched Nosferatu, and that is a disturbing film. I mean, it's, it, it is a, it is a oh, very, very unnerving very. film. And then you realize it's this German film from a century ago. There's, there's no, there's no speech lines. Nobody does any talking. It's, and the silence is deafening. You can hear the, the, the record crackling during the film and that adds a certain level to it. I mean, I think there's multiple ways that you could go into it. But the question is what is going to maintain the attention of the American population today. Right. And it's, it's not going to sit through the first 30 minutes of Nosferatu to get to the good part. Um, uh, today it, it has to be plot driven. It ha has to be exploitative um, because it's all about being a business. I think the art is starting to get sucked out of it because it has to be profitable. Um, and the good news is that a lot of indie films can't afford to do the type of special effects that the big films, you know, the big films set the standard for consumer demand, right? If Superman doesn't actually look like he's blasting through the building that everybody's like, ah, and they completely check out, they can't, you know, willfully suspend their disbelief anymore. So, you know, I think good indie people are having to result and they're having to go back to a lot of the old techniques that are used to disturb because, if we don't really think that person's head is getting cut off, then, you know, we're going to check out. We're going to be unable to willfully suspend our disbelief, which is really what's needed, especially in a genre like horror. So basically what you guys are thinking or are saying is that you don't think there's a uh any more room in an American audience for um, using your own imagination, implied horror and, you know, and implied threats. <laughs> so coming from the Halloween guy, who, who, who likes the suggestive scares, the shadows and uh, what you don't see is to better. To be fair, that's the kind of horror that I enjoy that. That's one of the reasons why I like Alfred Hitchcock films is because it mind fucks you. No, I mean, it's there. It's valid form of horror. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, are we numb to it at this point? Because we've oh, yeah, seen, because we're we've seen because we've seen everything. We're especially, especially with these kind of movies. All right, I, I watched you know a girl get her have her face melt off with a blowtorch. You don't really um, do, like, okay. What, what, I'm gonna next, try to add I mean? to the growing pile of ridiculous and controversial statements I've made during this. Um, you know, if Alfred Hitchcock was alive and making films in 2005, he would make a splatter film. Uh, uh, you, you, you rewind the clock back mm. to 1963 wow. when Psycho came out. It was the first film in film history to contain a toilet in it. It was the first film to depict that level of violence Very the true. way that it did. It addressed an extremely disturbing topic, which had been in the news in previous years for the first time because mass communication became a thing, right? Until World War II, mass communication wasn't even really a thing. Um, so he was on the, the I'm not even going to say the cutting edge. I'm going to say the bleeding edge of horror. He had, he had crossed the line and there was a huge controversy in his time over the rating it was going to get, whether it could get rated, whether it would get banned, you know, whether it could be released or wouldn't, he had to make all kinds of edits to it. He killed the protagonist of the film in the first half of the movie. That's something that had really never been done before. Oh my God, what are we going to do now? 
um, you know, I, I, he, it, he, in my opinion, was all about being on the bleeding edge. It just so happened that the Overton window was in a very different place in the 1950s and 60s than it was in, in 2005. And as a result of that, we got something that was entirely different. But if the Overton window had been switched or whatever, uh, you know, he was always about being on that edge, though. He was always trying to do something new and edgy and different. And he did it in Vertigo. He did it in Rear Window. Uh, he did it in South by Southwest. And by God, he did it in Psycho. I'm not going to disagree with you because I completely agree with you that the man was revolutionary and he did push limits. He really did in the best way possible. I really believe if it wasn't for Alfred Hitchcock, we wouldn't have what we have today as far as horror, thriller movies, suspense movies, mystery, anything like that. I don't think if he were alive <laughs> today, it would be really weird because the man would be super, super old. Um, I don't think he would do the splatter films solely because in his later years, they asked him about his level that he was at. And he was quoted as saying, there is nothing more terrifying than the human mind. What you don't see, your brain will warp in a million different directions. What's the point of ruining a surprise if you already get to see what's inside? <clears throat> So Alfred Hitchcock was so into the idea of, I'm going to let you freak yourself out just by a simple suggestion, something you don't necessarily have to see. So that I, I'm going to disagree. Do with you think that Alfred Hitchcock would have done the same thing that he did if a movie like Psycho had been made in 1925? Are you saying like as I'm just far saying as like we can't, or like what we can't, uh, uh, what do I want to say? We can't create a time traveler scenario. We can't take Alfred Hitchcock, uh, you know, and his and plop him in 2005, just completely take him out of 1960 and plop him into 2005. Yeah. You know what? The that would be entertaining. Damn it! I can't. But I think it, you know, dude. Um, <laughs> uh, Watch Bill and Ted end up. I, you up. know, well, death oh, is in it. I mean, that, that, you know, there's there's a part that that'll be our next conversation. Is Bill and Ted a splatter film? Um, each. <laughs> yeah, there you um, go. <laughs> you know, I just I, I think that the Overton window was in a particular place. And one? if you were to try the only way to really try to understand if he would be I, I just think he was more defined by being on the cutting edge. And at that time, at that time, the techniques that he was implementing, the thoughts that he was having, the idea of using the psychology of the human mind against itself. That was considered cutting edge. He didn't have great special effects, so he had to work with what he had. And what he did was brilliant, right. and it laid the foundation for what we ended up getting 45, 50, 60 years later. But if you were to push everything back 40 years behind then, and you were to say, okay, well, what if Psycho was made by a different director, the exact same movie, but it was made in 1920 instead of 1963, what would Alfred Hitchcock be doing in 1963? And I assure you, it wouldn't be anything like Psycho. It would be something entirely different because the Overton window would have shifted dramatically, dramatically from where it was. Right. I think you don't, I think you, this is what that, I think. I think I that just, you don't really like splatter films, and so you can't imagine your favorite director doing it. I enjoy sweater films, so take a step back for half a second, okay? There you go, Jeremy. Take a half a step back for a minute, because I do enjoy them. I don't consider well, them necessarily right. a okay. subgenre. And I'm not saying that even sweater films are a display of a lack of imagination, because you can't get creative with it. What I'm saying is... The allure of a mindfuck, in my opinion, 
is more powerful than watching somebody get their intestines ripped out. And of course, that also is up to interpretation and the individual. Just because somebody can stomach one thing and another person can't, that's up to the individual person. I just think a mind fuck with a suggestion is more powerful. Which, um, in your opinion, which one raises... I mean, do you think that seeing the actual physical graphic depiction of violence raises the stakes? Do you think the stakes are higher in a film like The Green Inferno or Saw than they are in The Psycho or Rear Window or anything like that? Uh, well, I think they're different. I think the stakes are, are slightly higher, different. Though? I mean, I'm not specifically about them. Are they animals. higher? No, I really don't think so. Either way, you have a human being who is in a vulnerable position, and one way or another, they're being killed. Uh, so you're saying that there's no distinction between the way that the way that Norman Bates commits his murder and the way that our victims die in hostel. You're not drawing a distinction between getting stabbed 10 times in the shower and dying in 30 seconds and being tied to a chair in a dark room and tortured with a drill. And you don't think those stakes are higher. No, I definitely think that there is a different distinction between them obviously i mean you even just depicted in detail yourself the difference between them what i'm saying is i guess it depends on what the viewer is mm -hmm. drawn to what they're looking for necessarily i guess is what i'm saying i mean i guess it breaks down to what's more scary to you are you, you know, is it more vulnerable to be alone showering and then somebody comes into the room right. versus you're strapped to a chair? Yes, you're in a vulnerable position. You can't go anywhere. You pretty much have to watch yourself get mangled. But what's scarier, what you don't see or what you do see? And again, that goes back to what I was saying about that goes back to the individual. Because trust me, I thoroughly enjoy. I mean, they're both horrific the ways to die, guys. But are wrong. you really telling me that you think that there's an equal level of terror between getting eaten by a shark in Jaws and being captured by elite hunting and hostile, or be having your plane crash and being captured by cannibals in the Green Mile? I mean, I think I'd, I'd much rather be eaten by a shark. For the record, Lord Jesus, if I must go. Uh, you know, uh, have Jaws eat me, please. Uh, I mean, uh, is, am I understanding what you're saying correctly? That you'd just as rather get eaten by a shark or uh, as, as be eaten by cannibals? I, well, I... I guess I'm speaking to, to, to you, <laughs> Quinn, because you're the one that, that seems to be saying that it's all about perspective, but it seems to me like everyone's perspective on this one would be pretty unanimous, that that you'd rather be stabbed to death 12 times and die in less than a minute in Psycho than, you know, be captured by elite hunting and be hung upside down naked to be scythed by an old woman so that she can bathe in your blood. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me the stakes are higher there, pretty uniformly. And again, I say well, I think it goes back she, to okay. interpretation. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, well, let, let's. <laughs> The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All right. Very similar in content, I think, when it comes to like a movie like Hostel. It's, it's, it's very basic. You know, group of friends, they show up, and now they're being pursued and tortured. Which movie would you agree is more scary? Hostel or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? If you bring it up to the level. I'm not talking about the remake, because here's the thing. The original yeah, Texas was, Chainsaw Massacre was yep. absolutely terrifying, and there was no blood in it, dude. Yep, yep. 
Oh, uh, everyone like like you take the take the meat hook scene. Yeah. Everyone's players um, that they saw the meat hook uh, go in the back. It never does. What would I say on that? I think that there is a grittiness to that film um, that you're right. It's it definitely stays with you. Um, as far as which one is scarier, yeah, absolutely. And in my personal opinion, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is is a um, is a scarier film. Um, uh, and I would say that probably, in my opinion, the scariest horror film that I've seen is House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, the zombie film, which fits in that same type of genre, uh, except, except this themes from Texas Chainsaw Massacre that terrified you. And it raises the stakes by using a lot of the same splatter film techniques that we've been talking about here. Um, but I agree that, uh, there's a, there's a polished, um, there's a polished, there's a polished way that the hostile film is shot um, that sort of takes away from it a little bit. Um, in addition, I think that because it was marketed very differently, especially to people of our generation um, that were, you know, in high school and college at the time that it came out, you knew what you were getting into. Um, but a lot of people that went to Texas Chainsaw Massacre knew they were going to a scary movie, but didn't know what they were getting. They didn't know that they were getting something much more exploitative than what it was. And as a result of that, that created a shock value to it that uh, that didn't that doesn't exist with a film like Hostel. Once you see it once, you can't unsee it. And it'll never be as scary as it was the first time. Right. Because, you know, what's going to happen. Um, that's true in both instances. But I think that there's a grittiness to that film. There's a rawness to that film um, that definitely takes it to a new level, um, which is why I think a lot of the foreign films tend to be a lot scarier than a lot of the domestic films because the budgets are lower and there's a grittiness to it. And, um, it forces the actors to do a lot more work and to be a, a lot better. Um, you know, cause you can't get away with everyone being distracted by all the great special effects that we can pay for. Um, so I would agree with you. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a scarier movie than Hostel. You bring up a really uh, interesting point that I want to touch upon, and that is rewatchability. And um, I, I feel like that something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or any of the you know figurehead slashers, whether it's Hellraiser, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, whatever, I think they have much more of a rewatchability than say a, a hostile. Um, only because kind of like what you say, once you've seen it the first time, get over that initial shock. It's, it's yeah, I think that, that um, really I think at least again. personally myself, um, for me, rewatchability only makes sense for the first, let's say three times. Once you get beyond three times, it has way more to do with personal taste than it has anything to do with the themes or the content or the acting or the cinematography or any one of the other technical aspects that we might sit around talking about. Um, I don't think it, there's very few films out there that the cinematography is actually so good that you would just watch it for the amazing cinematography. Um, I can only think of one and that would be 1917. I'd watch that thing a thousand times. because The cinematography is just unbelievable in it. But um so I think the real question is, okay, are you willing to watch it three times without, you know, just on your own, right? You're just on your own. Uh, to me, there are very few films that I wouldn't watch three times. Um, just because I think in three times you can learn enough new stuff after three watches, um, to learn something new, to find some new extra layer of interest, to discover some Easter eggs, um, that you didn't see before all that kind of stuff. Um, from a rewatchability standpoint, I think that for me personally, I mean, just there's so much more detail and there's so much more intricate special effects. And, um, you know, I went back and watched the hostile film. I've seen it a whole bunch of times. Um, I still get that anxious feeling. 
Um, as a matter of fact, I get it even earlier than I did before because I'm starting being like, no, don't go in there. <laughs> you know, he's, they're going to get you. Don't go in there, you know, because you know what's going to happen. Um, but long term, you know, the rewatchability yeah, isn't like, boy. oh, I watched it on Tuesday <laughs> and then I watched it on Wednesday and then I watched it on Thursday. Uh, it doesn't have that type of cycle to it. You got to put some space in, in between it. There has to be something nostalgic about it in order for you to go back. Um, but I agree with what it seems like you're implying at Gov, which is that uh, the rewatchability isn't as high for the exact same reasons we've been talking about throughout this entire conversation, right? You can't, uh, uh, it just, it, 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 it's like a firecracker. It, it burns really quick. There's a really intense half-life in it. And if you were to watch it three or four times, three or four nights, you'd never watch it again because you'd be done with it. There'd be nothing else to explore. I got one last question and I'm actually going to throw it at Ace because I just wanted to see his reaction. Uh, Splatterfoil. Uh, you, you stole it. I was going to say that. I was going to say that. Splatter. And you know yes. what? I've been waiting all day to bring it up too. <laughs> so, <laughs> Go ahead. Um, Boy, uh, that's um, it. That that's tough because, um, like we were talking, about, you know, how it dips its feet into to a bunch of subgenres. So yeah, I can definitely see it as a splatter film, but I can also see it as a straight slasher. I mean, obviously, uh, cutting a woman in half from veg to head, definitely, <laughs> and showing it, showing it, <laughs> definitely. Uh, makes the case that it is a torture porn splatter film while her friend watches while her friend watches exactly um i i think the what separates terrifier from say like a hostile or the later um saw movies is the uh the art the clown character himself and how he plays with the victims and sets the victims up like a tra- like a traditional slasher would, like a Michael Myers would. I think that really sets it apart uh, from just a straight "let's gross you out." I-, I think the character of Art the Clown changes things. So you're calling it a splatter film with an icon? Um, kind of. It's yeah. definitely exploitative um, in nature. There's a lot of, yeah. um, but I-, I don't think. Again, I think that there are definitely graphic natures, but it would appear to me that the film itself does not, again, it's a good splatter film has to have, has to revolve around almost the fascination with the vulnerability of the human body. And Art the Clown, I don't think does that. I think it leverages a lot of the same techniques. I think it's terrifying and wonderful and scary. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more of it, but it, because the story itself doesn't wrap around the vulnerability of the, of the human body, I don't think it fits. Uh, I don't think it quite fits the splatter film genre. <laughs> okay, uh, well, we just hit one hour here. So one last question before we wrap this up. Do you ever think... Um, the splatter film or torture porn will ever see mainstream success like it did with Hostel and with Saw ever again? Or do you think this is something that kind of stays on the um, the streaming services? Yeah, I, I, the, I think it's you know, special audiences. Um, or if, if it's not dead, it's it's on life support and someone just needs to pull the plug. Um, I think, uh, and, and I don't think it's coming back. Um, you might see in the future... Um, some homages, you know, when, uh, you know, when, when, uh, uh, people our age or maybe a little bit younger, uh, become financially successful and they want to do a passion project. I'm thinking about like Quentin Tarantino's grindhouse and, and death proof and those types of films. We might see a good homage, uh, down the road. Uh, but I think that, um, I think it's dead. And I think that that's a good thing because there's only so much, there's only so much you can exploit 
this genre and, and actually get good content out of it. So I think it's dead, but I don't think that's a bad thing. And there you have it. Torture porn. What do you guys think? Um, well, like I said in it, I, I like, I, I guess I'll, I, I'll live with the term splatter films because I hate the torture porn or the Gorno thing. It just doesn't sound right to me. But I, I do like hearing from somebody who is really into it. You don't meet a lot of those guys. It's very rare. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a, in my opinion at least, a black mark on the horror genre. I mean, in terms of mainstream, it came, it went. No one's really talking about it anymore. Yes, uh, this is definitely a unique topic, especially for us. We don't really cover films like this. So once again, I want to thank Jeremy for his time. And again, if you guys want to hear more of Jeremy's opinion and insight, you can find him as a frequent guest on Just My Opinion with Ken Lambert right here on Anchor. But on to the next. Gov, what's next? Well, Halloween season is amongst us, and I would like to dust off one of the Halloween classics that has a lot of debate about it because it's quite literally a boxing match on film, and that would be Freddy vs. Jason Ooh, Quinn. on Scarifier. Let's get back to the movies. Quinn, how you feeling about that? You ready to take on Freddy vs. Jason? I'm actually like really giddy about it. I know that sounds super ridiculous, but I'm not there's been a lot coming out about the film, uh, uh, more importantly, a book that was just published that really details the production, so I'd love to get into that, and of course, the movie itself. All right, so there you have it. Next week, traditional Scarefire, back to doing a movie review. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Scarefire. <laughs> <laughs>